0: Thank you for leading us in that time of uh, worship and singing praise to the Lord. And good morning, Southwestern and TBC family. Good morning. Hope you all are doing well. Uh, The Super Bowl is over. Football season is now over. Uh, And if last week uh, was the Super Bowl in chapel, we return to regular practice today. And uh, with that in mind, I do ask that you'd open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, which you've just heard read. And I'd like us to think this morning on the topic of joy in the proclamation and progress of the gospel. Joy in the proclamation and progress of the gospel. Paul is an amazing study as we have uh, enjoyed enduring and hearing all the good things that he's gone through. And if I were to ask you today to give a report on the circumstances in which you minister... What might you say? How are you doing? How are your circumstances? In this passage, we have such a report coming from Paul to the Philippians. God had done amazing things in Acts sixteen eleven, a powerful movement of the Spirit of God, the first convert in Europe, Lydia. And the Holy Spirit sends Paul to Philippi, And in those verses, the Macedonian vision directs him right to that place. And we have the Philippian believers and the birth of the church there in Acts 16. We rejoice as Southern Baptists in sending missionaries, in sending our pastors as missionaries. But from the perspective of this audience, you can see a great deal of concern as Paul has become imprisoned. And so imagine, if you were, as you think about the report he gives here, that your pastor had been imprisoned. The very one who had been sent to take the gospel and the good news to others had been captured and placed in chains. And so Paul here addresses the concern the Philippians have raised of the progress of the gospel. And he does it with a disclosure formula here in verse 12. There are four parts, and this is consistent throughout scripture. There's an expression or a desire. There's a verb of knowing. There's an address uh, to the addressees, and there's the information disclosed. This is the pattern he sets out here. And so he says in verse 12, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And so how's the church plant going, Paul? They're going well, actually. They've turned out well because the gospel is proceeding. And the greater emphasis on the gospel than my own circumstances is put before us. There's a moment here for us to pause and ask the question, is the gospel the center of your life? All else, Paul would say, doesn't matter. And so, In this text, he says, "'Know ye, brethren, I want you to know, "'if you were to use the King James, "'let me tell you about my business.'" Persecution, of course, had had begun to uh, occur more frequently and with rapidity in this time under Nero. And so there was angst, you can imagine, among these believers as persecution happened in Rome. And so Paul, as he gives this report, wants to alleviate this idea and remove this idea that things are failing with the gospel. And he does so with this comparison. Rather, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress. It's as if to say that though you feared my circumstances might injure the cause of the gospel, rather, my circumstances have promoted it. It's an interesting word here. The greater progress of the gospel and how the gospel has actually uh, advanced. The idea of turning out or advancing comes from the word procopain, advancement. We here have a department of institutional advancement, of which I spent a great number of years. Wonderful department. Give thanks to those people when you see them for helping keep your tuition low. But here in Philippians, Paul reminds us that the gospel is advancing. It's a word picture of of pioneers who are copto or cutting away before an army to make preparations for their march. That is, they're clearing the way of any obstacles. The obstacles are being removed and the contrast of that would be the idea of eggcopto, that is to throw obstacles in the way. And so this metaphor of pioneers of cutting away before an army is such that Paul wants you to know that his imprisonment, rather than a hindrance, his imprisonment is actually an advance. There's even a wordplay that you can see in this text here between advance, procope, that is similar to hindrance, proskope. Proscope. In Galatians 5, 7, he would remind us, you were running well, who hindered you from obeying the truth? And so in this initial report, in this introduction to what he's going to tell us, Paul wants us to know that God's sovereignty is not subjected to seemingly insurmountable circumstances. Your circumstances uh, do not limit God. He can work even in the midst of prison. Well, how, you may ask the question, though, Paul, thank you for giving this report uh, to us, the church, but we don't really understand what you mean by advancing. How did the gospel advance while you had chains? Verse 13 and it indicates two, one of two positive revol- results of how the gospel advances. He says in verse 13, so that my imprisonment, in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And so first we see an advancement to those outside the believer community, the Praetorian Guard. This explanation here indicates two results, not only that the outsiders hear the gospel, but the insiders, those who are believers, are emboldened to share and preach the gospel. He would say it this way, it has become clear that my chains, my bonds are manifest in Christ. And so here in verse 13, he answers the question, why? Why am I imprisoned? For Christ, in Christ. And and the the structure here in this verse is such that uh, the word uh, fanerous, I am in chains for Christ, has become evident. It's an idea of a new condition, that of being known. It's as if saying, you didn't really understand that these chains, what the purpose of them were for, were, was for. Maybe you thought that uh, uh, chains meant the gospel had ceased, that that which I had preached to you was no longer going to advance and progress. But no, actually, what's been shown here is that in Christ, my chains are understood. Acts 9.42 We know that through all of Joppa, everyone heard about Tabitha and Dorcas. Uh, Tabitha, also called Dorcas, when she was called to rise up from the dead. It's the same word here. And so Christ, connected with this clear and evident indication, it's been made known to the entire Roman praetorium that the chains that have been put on Paul a result of his relationship with Christ. This praetorian guard, this body of men, these would have been the Navy SEALs of Caesar's elite group of protectors. And there's a metonymy here that simply says that this place, the place of the soldiers, have heard the gospel. And so there was a purpose, a greater purpose in this imprisonment but not only to the guards, but also to everyone else. In verse 14, we see the second positive re- result of this imprisonment, that believers speak the word of God more fearlessly. It is because of these changes that to a much greater degree, they even dare speak the word. Verse 14 again says this, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Courage jumps off the pages here in this passage. There's persuasion. There's so much more uh, evidence to, to speak. There's a daringness. There's a fearlessness in verse 14 to what has happened as a result of his imprisonment. And, and Paul takes comfort, and he's happy that there is this confidence in the Lord, this common saying that he introduces throughout the whole text, that in the Lord we are to rejoice. We are to rejoice in the Lord over seven times other than this in the book. In 2.19, 24, and 29, in chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 4, verses 1, 2, and 4. So here for infinite, uh, emphasis, he wants us to know that we are to have confidence Trust in the Lord despite the circumstances. Keep speaking the word. Stay on assignment. And it is because of these bonds that the word of God is advanced. But not only that, we now see that the word of God has uh, positively affected those outside and inside the believing community. But the way in which the gospel is preached was not always of noble means. And so as we turn to verses 15 to 17, we find a proper and improper motivation in proclaiming the gospel of Christ. And it serves as a warning and also an encouragement. Verse 15 says, some of these that is, some of those who who are preaching the gospel, to be sure are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. So there, there are apparently some exceptions to those who have spoke the word boldly. There are exceptions to those who spoke the word fearlessly. There, there apparently was not a universal revival of those who did speak. And so the question rises from the text, who are these some? And I would submit to you that these some are a, a, a classification of the majority that it, that was referenced earlier. Those brethren who are speaking the word of God. Others have tried to argue that this has to do with unbelievers preaching. Uh, Chrysostom and others have uh, surmised this, that they were preaching to increase the possibility of uh, a persecution for Paul. So it would be that as others would preach Christ, they would eventually get to the place to lop off his head. Others have even said this could potentially be a, a, a comparison here for those who weren't speaking with good will uh, of Judaizers. But we know that in 2 Corinthians 11, 4, Paul would call this another Jesus altogether. But the structure of the text makes it clear. Most, some of, whom, others of whom. It places them in the same category to say that the referent includes those who preach even out of jealousy. It is why they preach. Have you ever preached... Out of envy and strife? Have you ever felt envy towards someone else preaching? Here Paul would call us to check our attitude, check our motivation. As others advance, the advance of the gospel is that for which we are to rejoice. But better than preaching that in strife and envy... Paul admonishes us to preach out of goodwill. Those who preach out of envy. This is an ethic in 1 Peter 2:1 to 2 1-2 that is made clear that believers are to put away. Galatians 5:20 to 21 says, that is a work of the flesh. So both of these groups preach Christ, but one group moved by envy and partisanship, and the other group moved by love for Paul. Those who preach out of goodwill, eudokion, preach in a way of satisfaction and contentment. And they're preaching towards Paul and towards God. The text presents in such a way to say... That Christ, uh, that to Paul, out of goodwill for him and out of love for Christ, the proclamation of the gospel is going forward to encourage Paul and out of love for Christ. It is the word kerux here in verse 15. And if you studied that word, you know that the messenger is a herald. And as a herald, He is sent with a particular message and under the authority of the one who sent him, the king or otherwise. And it is a responsibility of his to deliver the message, the gospel in this case, that he was sent to proclaim. Then in verse 16... An interesting thing happens if you have a King James Bible or a new King James Bible. Using the Texas Receptus, they flip verses 16 and 17 to keep the order of those who preached with envy and those who preached with goodwill and consecutive uh, standing. But the NASB has it right, as do other texts. And there's a chiastic structure here. They that are of love preach Christ because they know that I am set for the defense of the gospel. Yet they that are factitious preach Christ not purely because they want to add affliction to my bonds. So verse 16 the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. 1 Timothy 1.5, we're reminded that the aim of our instruction, use a very similar text here, a very similar word, that we are to preach out of love, and the aim of our instruction is out of love in 1 Timothy 1.5 that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And of course, 1 Corinthians 16, 13, stay alert, stand firm in the face, show courage, be strong. Everything you do should be done in love. And so when we preach the gospel, Paul reminds us that there is a right motive and a wrong motive. There's a motive which humbles self and exalts Christ in love. And there's a motive that raises self, demotes love, and yet sovereignly the power of the gospel can still be preached and proclaimed. Paul says he's appointed for this defense. And it is in this appointment that he can say he knows he's appointed for this defense of the gospel. He's satisfied, he's settled. As Dr. Hawkins preached a couple weeks ago, it is so important that you settle in your mind the call of God on your life for the ministry assignment to which he has called you. Paul knew this. He was okay with the chains because he knew that God had sovereignly allowed him to be in that place. In Acts 21, I've always been struck, Agabus gives this warning to Paul. Acts 21 verse 10 says, As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, We, as well as the local residents, began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. I identify with that in our American culture. It is much more desired to be, live an easy life. And specifically with this text, it's much easier to not speak the word than to speak the word. And if we speak the word, it's easier to speak it without boldness than it is to speak it with boldness. So here Paul is, this warning comes in Acts 21 and and this, uh, as he's commissioned to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul answers this concern that's raised from the local residents. Don't go to Jerusalem, they say. Verse 13, Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, the will of the Lord be done. So Paul says, I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel in verse 16. He is settled in his mind. He's willing to go to chains. He's willing to die for the cause of Christ. The idea here from the verb k is that it's a fixture, as if he's in one spot, a soldier who's been posted in a line of defense, who's laid down his life for the gospel, with an apologia, a defense to clear up the gospel. So those who know this see his imprisonment for what it is. It's an advancement of the gospel. The gospel, Paul is telling us, is on trial. But he is the key witness in prison. Then continuing this comparison of those who preach with envy and those who preach uh, out of goodwill, verse 17 says the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment and so the structure of this would be this way verse 15 some preach Christ because of envy and rivalry subset point others because of goodwill Subset point, the latter do so out of love because they know my imprisonment is on behalf of the gospel. And then prime point in verse 17, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they are causing affliction in my bonds. So this opposition that came to Paul came out of personal rivalry. Those... Former ones who proclaim Christ from selfish ambition and partisanship. The idea here is uh, that of contention. In Philippians 2.3, the same word is used, do nothing out of selfish ambition. And, it, and in history, we know that Erathias is only found in Aristotle before the New Testament, and it denoted a self-seeking pursuit of political office by unfair means. Many pastors would share the story of those who may come against them in their ministry, those who out of selfish ambition have potentially canvassed the congregation and ended up in a church split. This is the result of selfish preaching and selfish ambition. And the contrast is set up in such a way that not proclaiming him out of selfish ambition but rather with pure motives, sincerely. When we preach the gospel, when we live our lives, how we live our lives, Paul calls us to examine ourselves and to ensure that our motives are consistent with love, with truth of the gospel. Well, these Envious parties who desire to add pain to his imprisonment. It's an interesting construction here. The word used in verse 17 cause me distress in my imprisonment actually comes from the idea of raise up, erect. And in the New Testament... Positively, positively has been used with the idea of the resurrection. But here, these of ill motives, these who have preached out of envy, they want to rub, the picture here, pressure in Paul. They want to add pressure to his chains. It wasn't enough that he was imprisoned. In other words, the reason these selfishly motivated preachers were preaching was that they wanted to trouble Paul in prison. And so they had shortcomings. (laughs) They had sinful hearts. They had sinful attitudes that captivated them and prevented them from doing what God called them to do, which was to preach the gospel with sincerity and with purity. So you see this structure. Those who preach... Out of love, those who preach, out of selfish ambition and partisanship, trying to do harm to Paul. It's a pretty bleak outlook when you think of the way they tried to hurt him. But Paul has this great response. He pulls us in and he says, this is my situation. This is my report. You asked how I'm doing. You've expressed concern for me. Here's how I'm doing. I've been in prison, but the gospel has Advance. And he asked this question in verse 18 to sum it all up. And he asked, What then? T. Gar. What does it matter? Paul says that only that in every way. And, And he says, Whether in pretense or pretext, that is the idea of shining before those who have a false motive, those who cloak themselves with false motives, Christ is preached. And the motives, though they were odd at odds with the message itself, Christ was preached. 1 Thessalonians 2, 5, Paul reminds us that he never had a pretext for greed. And he, he's reminding us here that What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. So how do you take affliction in your life? How do you take what seem to be blocks in your ministry assignment? A lack of advance in your ministry assignment. Paul asked the question What then? What does it matter? And I think it's good for us to pause and ask this question. It's as if to say that the how of preaching is not the object of Paul's joy here. It is the fact of his preaching. The power of the gospel does not depend on the character of the gospel, but the gospel itself. And these, through this text, three words come together to speak, to preach, and to proclaim. To remind us that in just this short span of 30 years, Paul had preached the gospel from Judea to front and sinner before Caesar. And Paul would remind us through this text not merely that things will turn all right in spite of our problems, but that problems can actually assist us in our Christian experience. This letter emphasizes the need to stand fast and to persevere. Philippians 1:25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all. For your progress and joy, your procope and charon in the faith. Here Paul shows us what a surrendered life looks like. A life that has appointment to gospel ministry at the front and center. And that the main thing is the main thing, to preach Christ. HGC Mole says it this way. Self has yielded the inner throne to Christ and the result is a divine harmony between circumstances and self as both are seen equally subject to him and contributing to his ends. I don't know how your ministry is going. I don't know whether you feel the gospel is advancing in your life. I don't know if the gospel is center in your life. But here in Philippians 1:12 to 18, Paul reminds us to have the gospel as the centerpiece of our life and ministry. To recognize that the appointment and the call of God is such that it is without repentance. And that we can trust the Lord in guiding us in circumstances that may seem contrary to the gospel, but in fact are advancing the gospel through a life surrendered to him and his call on your life. In many ways, I think Paul might have appreciated the spirit of this song as I think about his life and ministry in the book of Acts, the unseen hand. And so today as I close with this song, I would ask you to consider your life Consider the extent to which you've placed your hand in the unseen hand, and all trusting the Lord to guide you, to lead you in the ministry to which He's called you. There is an unseen hand to me that leads through ways I cannot see. While going through this world of woe, this hand still leads me as I go. I'm trusting to the unseen hand that guides me through this weary land, and some sweet day I'll reach that strand. Still guided by the unseen hand. This hand has led through shadows drear, and while it leads, I have no fear. I know twill lead me to that home where sin nor sorrow e'er can come. I'm trusting to the unseen hand that guides me through this weary land, and some sweet day I'll reach that strand, still guided by the unseen hand. I long to see my Savior's face and sing the story. I've been saved by grace, and there upon that golden strand, I'll praise him for his guiding hand. Brothers, sisters, may we trust the Lord to guide us in our full proclamation of the gospel, and may we find joy and rejoicing in the proclamation of the gospel. Amen.